Come all me brave heroes that have to this place come, let us sing in the praise of good brandy and rum. There's a clear crystal fountain near England do all. Bring me the punch ladle, I'll fathom the bowl. I'll fathom the bowl. I'll fathom the bowl. Bring me the punch ladle, I'll fathom the bowl. Previously on Cocktail History, we discussed the origin of distillation in Europe, the five ingredients in traditional punch, and how Spain and Portugal conquered the world looking for spices. In this episode, these ingredients will finally make their way into a punch bowl as English and Dutch sailors begin to take over Portugal's crumbling empire in the Far East. Since the origin of punch is something of a mystery, I decided to call up an expert. So, on this show, we have a very special guest, the man who literally wrote the book on punch, David Wandrich. David is a cocktail writer for Esquire magazine and the author of the books Punch and Imbibe. We'll hear from him a little later on. We'll also begin the story that's going to occupy our next three episodes. In parallel with the story of Punch, I'm going to trace the rise and fall of one of the most powerful and influential corporations in world history, the English East India Company. You may vaguely remember the name from history class because it was the East India Company's tea that American colonists dumped into Boston Harbor. For those concerned about the power of multinational corporations in today's world, the East India Company represents a nightmarish example. At its height, the company commanded private armies, collected taxes, printed money, and administered courts of law, all while returning a handsome profit for its shareholders. Yet beyond the occasional mention, the company is little remembered in the United States, in England, or pretty much anywhere else besides India itself. But the company left a giant footprint on the history of the world. Among the legacies of its more than 250 years in business was the colonization of India, the opium war between England and China, the founding of Singapore, the Boston Tea Party, and the invention of punch. Welcome to Cocktail History, Episode 2, The Great Spice War. I'm your host, Sam Eilertson. In our last episode, we talked about the arrival of Portuguese ships into Asian waters. But despite this being a booze podcast, I didn't say much about the booze they encountered there. Yet, as I mentioned last time, distillation in India and China goes back a long ways. In fact, Indians were probably distilling way earlier than Europeans, possibly more than a thousand years before. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of information about the history of distillation in Asia, at least not that anyone's bothered to translate into English. But since I had the world's foremost expert on cocktail history on the phone, I decided to ask him about what we do know about the history of distillation in Asia, and the spirits the first European sailors to reach the Indian Ocean would have encountered. Nobody's written a history of distillation in Asia, at least nobody that I know of. 
And, uh, you know, the barriers to that are obvious. Uh, many, many languages, uh, scattered archives, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what evidence I know of at least shows that, uh, you know, distillation in Asia goes back at least the second or third century BC in, uh, the headwaters of the Indus River, you know, up in, uh, up near Peshawar, the, that, that whole, uh, area. It goes back certainly uh, around the time of Christ in China and probably well before Mongolia. When the Europeans got to Asia, they found large amounts of distilled spirits being consumed, which is fascinating, uh, especially because it was only then becoming popular in Europe, drinking distilled spirits only in the 1400s and uh, 1500s. Do you, see, uh, do you see that break out from being like some alchemical medicinal thing and starting to become common? And they show up in Asia and it's like, beyond common. Everybody's drinking this stuff. I mean, they were making rum in India, and this is documented in the 1200s. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about sort of what the different styles of Iraq that they had um, at that point were? Yeah, well, Iraq is a, it's like liquor. It's a generic term. In Islam, it basically means liquor in, in, in Arabic and all the Islamic-influenced lands and the ones contiguous to them. They, uh, they all adopted that term, and it could be anything. In uh, Bengal, it was rum made from molasses, you know, left over from sugar making. In South India, it was mostly made from coconut palm, uh, from the sap of coconut palms, also from cashew fruit. Uh, they still make a little of that, and it is one of the the uh, more pungent distillates I've ever tried. In Indonesia, it was made uh, by the overseas Chinese community because, uh, you know, they, they were not Muslims, so they were exempt from the ban on uh, the Muslim interdiction of, of drinking. And so they uh, took over the liquor industry, uh, although their Muslim neighbors were happy to buy the stuff from them. They distilled a mixture of molasses, a little palm wine mixed in, and some Chinese-style uh, koji, or uh, juku as they call it in China, these uh, little uh, cakes of moldy and yeasty uh, rice to start fermentation, and that gave it a very pungent and particular flavor. And like all Chinese spirits, it was made very strong. Uh, Goa Arak, the uh, the stuff from South India, from palm, was uh, made much weaker. Also, you find in the Philippines, Arak made from rice, also from palm sap. You see various rice spirits, you know, labeled as Arak. Uh, even up and in deep inland into Mongolia, and the Arak there. Uh, was made from uh, from kumis, from fermented mare's milk. And uh, that must have been particularly pungent. Well, that was informative. Now to England. You tell us all as you pass by Call in and drink if you are dry Call in and spend your money brisk And pawn your jerkin for a jug over this as you hopefully recall from episode one, in the early 1500s, Portugal built a trading empire in the east. It wasn't a land empire like the Spanish conquest of the Americas, but it was pretty violent nonetheless. The Portuguese took over key trading ports and strategic naval positions, which they used to control trade. Their important bases were at the Straits of Hormuz, the Malabar coast on the southwestern tip of India, and the Spice Islands of the Moluccas. 
They had forts on the clove-producing islands of Ternate and Tidore, and the strategically located island of Amban. They had also established trade with, but never managed to conquer, the nutmeg-producing Banda Islands. This is because the Bandese responded to any attempt to bring troops onto their islands with attack, and the Portuguese decided they just weren't worth conquering. Unfortunately for the Banda Islands, the Dutch would come to a very different conclusion. So all that happened in the early 1500s, but by the late 1500s, Portugal's empire was looking down on its luck. Thanks to a reckless young king getting himself killed in Morocco, it merged with the Spanish empire, which got its butt kicked by the Dutch rebellion and its armada destroyed by the wily Francis Drake. Now, with Spain and Portugal on the ropes, the Protestant allies in England and the newly formed Dutch Republic were both looking for ways to get in on the spice trade. Three years after Drake defeated the Spanish Armada, a group of English merchants funded their first commercial expedition to the Indies. To lead the voyage, they turned to James Lancaster. Lancaster had worked as a mercenary in Portugal as a young man, and had served under Drake in the battle with the Spanish Armada, so he seemed like a logical choice. In April of 1591, Lancaster set sail with three ships, the wind at his back, and high hopes of making a serious fortune in the Indies. After that, pretty much everything that could go wrong did go wrong. First, he got caught in the doldrums and lost men to scurvy. Then he lost a ship in a storm. Then his flagship got struck by lightning. Then he lost a man in a dust-up with natives in the Comoro Islands. Then, due to navigational errors, they missed several islands where they had planned to stop and ended up going all the way from Africa to Malaysia without taking on provisions, losing many more men in the process. In Malaysia, they began to die of disease, eventually the crew mutinied, and demanded they turn back. On the way back, a squall destroyed their sails. Then, when they managed to buy some canvas off of a French ship, a hurricane destroyed their mast. Lancaster and all but a few of the crew left the ship for an island in search of a new mast, and depending on which account you read, either she was blown out to sea or the remaining crew decided to maroon their shipmates. Regardless, Lancaster and his men were stranded until another French vessel picked them up and brought them home. Of his 198-man crew, just 25 returned alive. This got England's merchants understandably wary about funding more voyages. A few years later, the Dutch started sending their own fleets to the Indies, and the contrast between the maiden voyages of the two nations kind of establishes a pattern for how things would go from here on out. The English being unlucky and often incompetent, and the Dutch being a bit more competent and absolutely ruthless. To give you an idea of how the first Dutch voyage went, they attacked the port of Bantam because they thought the prices were too high, then massacred a welcoming party on the nearby island of Madura because they suspected it might be a trap. And the violence wasn't limited to the people they encountered either. Their officers seemed to spend most of the trip plotting to kill one another. Pretty soon, the Dutch were sending a lot of trading voyages to the Indies. 16th century Holland was the entrepreneurial nation that gave us the world's first stock exchange and its first market crash, the infamous tulip bubble. Now, at this time, England and the Netherlands were allies. The English supported the Dutch rebellion against Spain, and the Dutch helped defeat the Spanish Armada. 
But English merchants were not about to let the Dutch take over Portugal's monopoly on the spice trade unopposed. In 1599, a group of about 200 merchants petitioned Queen Elizabeth to grant them a charter for a special trading company. Now, Portugal's trade had been managed and run by the crown through a body called the Casa de India, which had explicitly combined commerce with conquest. The Dutch were sending voyages financed by small merchant companies. The English merchants proposed another model that would combine the consolidation of a government-run operation with the efficiency and ability to raise capital of a private company. This new corporation would be known as the East India Company. The East India part of the name, by the way, referred not to India, but to the East Indies, which was a nebulously defined region that sometimes referred to the Indonesian islands and sometimes to pretty much all of Asia. It's the East Indies because the West Indies was what they called the Caribbean. Remember, Columbus thought he was in India when he got there. So the proposed East India Company would be a privately funded operation with the exclusive right to trade with the Indies. What they wanted was a government-backed monopoly. Basically, they said, if we compete with each other and prices drop, we're not going to be able to make enough money to justify the risks of sending ships around the world, so we need the government to make competition illegal. On the last day of the year 1600, Queen Elizabeth signed the East India Company Charter. The company and the monopoly aspect in particular would prove controversial throughout its 250 plus years in business. By the time it was shuttered by the British government, the company was practically reviled. There wasn't much Karl Marx, Adam Smith, and Edmund Burke would agree on, but they all hated the East India Company. The company's first voyage, which they put together as quickly as possible, was led by our indomitable friend James Lancaster. You'd think that after losing 90% of his men on the first voyage, he'd be crazy to go back, and anyone who signed up to go with him would be even crazier. But this voyage proved far more successful than Lancaster's first. At the port of Bantam on Java, Lancaster loaded his ships to the brim with pepper. The English bought so much pepper that the Javans speculated as to what they could possibly need it all for. Since they knew England was a cold country, they wondered if perhaps the English were using pepper to insulate their homes. Lancaster also secured permission to build a permanent trading post in Bantam. These trading posts were critical to the European trading strategy. They were generally fortified compounds that served as warehouses, living quarters for merchants, and small military bases. The merchants, who were called factors, would live there year-round. When ships departed, they would leave any goods they didn't sell with the factors, who would then try to trade them for spices or other local goods when prices were most favorable. These trading compounds where factors lived became known as factories. So, Lancaster made it back with at least the majority of his crew still alive. However, pepper turned out to be not quite as hot of a commodity as they had hoped. The problem was the king had acquired his own load of pepper, presumably from English privateers who ransacked Spanish and Portuguese ships. The king forbade the company from selling any pepper until he sold his own supply first. And also London was hit by a plague, so this was a bad time to be selling anything. So the company basically had to pull their investors' teeth to get them to fund a second voyage, and to add insult to injury, they issued a dividend in the form of bags of pepper. Given the terrible survival rate of these early voyages, if you were a sailor in the 17th century, you probably would have wanted to have a drink. And indeed, they did. 
Ships stocked large quantities of beer, wine, and once aquavitae became common in Europe, hard alcohol. Now the captain's in his cabin, drinking wine and brandy way, haul away, we'll haul away, Joe. Of course, even though they stocked no small number of barrels of booze, by the time they got to the other side of the world, they had an unfortunate tendency to be dry. So picking up some local fare, including a rock, became standard practice. The East India Company ships, uh, you know, they ran out of beer very soon when they set out from England, and beer was a standard part of the sailors' uh, daily ration. A gallon of beer a day they were supposed to get, or an equivalent, you know, smaller amount of wine. And uh, when that stuff was gone, it was gone. And uh, they had to really learn to improvise. And, and you see uh, uh, East India Company ships uh, in the East India Company's records and uh, all that stuff is, is available on Google Books. Uh, you see them buying Arak all over the East and uh, provisioning their ships with it. Clearly, uh, they adapted to it pretty quickly as a rational solution to the, uh, to the lack of alcohol which is something that Englishmen could not stand. Keep in mind, this wasn't just about inebriation, it was also about sanitation. Keeping fresh water uncontaminated on a long sea voyage was a losing battle, so adding some alcohol made it a lot safer and more palatable. When you consider the fact that many captains were giving their crew citrus juice to prevent scurvy, and you would want some sugar to make the citrus juice palatable, and their cargo holds were often full of nutmeg, well, now that's starting to sound an awful lot like punch, isn't it? We'll come back to that. My father, he do lie in the depth of the sea, with no stone at his head, but what matter for me? There's a clear crystal fountain near England to roll. Bring me the punch ladle, I'll fathom the bow. I'll fathom the bow. I'll fathom the bow. Bring me the punch ladle, I'll fathom the bow. Meanwhile, over in Amsterdam, the Dutch merchants took note of the English model and decided that competition was bad for business. So, eight rival trading companies merged to form the Dutch East India Company, which, like the English company, was given a government-backed monopoly. I'm not even going to try to pronounce East India Company in Dutch, but the acronym for it is VOC. And for the rest of the episode, I'll use VOC to refer to the Dutch company and just refer to its English counterpart as the East India Company. With their new syndicate formed, the Dutch began to send ever larger and more militarized fleets to the Indies. For the next few decades, the VOC would be the English East India Company's bitter rival, and the two would soon be battling it out with gunpowder and steel. The approach of the two companies was, from the very beginning, quite different. The English attitude was summed up by Ambassador to India Thomas Rowe as, quote, If you will profit, seek it at sea and in quiet trade. The English sent small trading fleets that could turn a quick profit, and while they didn't shy from violence, they didn't go looking to pick fights either. At this point, they weren't looking to conquer lands, just to make money. The Dutch, on the other hand, hewed much closer to Portugal's model of profit through conquest. They didn't just want trade, they wanted monopoly, and they were willing to devote substantial resources to getting it. 
This difference in attitude may have stemmed in part from a difference in finances. The VOC was the world's first publicly traded company. Its stock was permanent, and therefore its outlook was long-term. The English company, on the other hand, raised capital for each voyage independently, so its shareholders expected an immediate profit. In 1613, it would move towards a permanent stock model similar to the VOC, but by that point they were already falling behind. The VOC was also, from the beginning, empowered to maintain armies and conclude treaties with Asian rulers, another power that would eventually be granted to the English company, but not yet. So, while the company in London was trying to unload thousands of tons of pepper and begging their investors for more money, in Bantam, things were not going well for the men Lancaster had left behind. Disease had killed both their leader and their second-in-command, and soon the English factory found itself in a state of virtual siege. The problem was the Dutch, who were arriving in the Indies in far greater numbers than the English, and not exactly making friends either. Every time the Dutch robbed, raped, or murdered someone, and this tended to happen frequently, mobs would form in the streets of Bantam. The English factory was a lot less well defended than the Dutch factory, and the locals weren't up to speed on the distinctions between different groups of white people. So these mobs would often end up trying to storm the palisade of the English compound, or send flaming arrows sailing over the walls. By the time the company's second voyage arrived under Henry Middleton in 1604, he found the Dutch ahead of him pretty much every step of the way. After stopping off in Bantam, Middleton headed for the Spice Islands. First, he stopped in at the island of Ambon, and had just gotten the Portuguese to agree to let him trade when a Dutch fleet showed up, blasted the hell out of the Portuguese fort, and told him to be on his way. He then headed north for the clove islands of Ternate and Tadore, sending another ship south for the nutmeg-producing Banda Islands. You may recall from episode 1 that Ternate and Tadore were perpetually at war. When Middleton arrived, the Dutch had allied with Ternate, while the Portuguese still held Tidore. Middleton actually managed to save the Sultan of Ternate and three Dutch merchants from a Tidoran attack, but they were hardly gracious about it. Middleton got to watch the Dutch assault on Tidore, which was pretty spectacular. Apparently, the magazine in the Portuguese fort caught fire, and the fort and some 70 men were blown into pieces. With Tidore in their hands, the Dutch showed Middleton the door. He complained that, quote, if this frothy nation may have the trade of the Indies to themselves, their pride and insolence will be intolerable. I'm not sure what he meant by frothy, but it's a wonderful sentence. Things went better down in the Banda Islands, where the third ship loaded up with nutmeg. A Dutch ship did show up, but the relations between them were cordial. The Dutch captain actually invited the English captain over for dinner although apparently the Englishman brought his own chicken pie because he couldn't stand Dutch food. Despite the looming Dutch presence, Middleton made it back with a hefty load of nutmeg, cloves, and pepper, turning an excellent profit and casting aside for the moment doubts about the company's solvency. However, despite Middleton's account of the Dutch takeover, the English merchants remained unwilling to make a serious military response to Dutch power, continuing instead to send out their small trading fleets. They did, however, begin to hedge their bets by sending out feelers to other potential sources of trade, including China, Japan, and India. The company's third voyage under William Keeling took an exceedingly long time, partly because of Keeling's love for Shakespeare. 
Every time they needed to stop to pick up supplies, Keeling would lengthen their stay so that the crew could learn and perform a Shakespeare play. With Keeling was England's first envoy to India, William Hawkins. Hawkins split off from the rest of Keeling's fleet and headed for the city of Surat in northwestern India. One of the principal reasons for seeking trade with India was actually to make trade with the Spice Islands less expensive. The problem was the only thing England really had to export was wool, and no one in tropical Indonesia wanted anything to do with wool. The English hoped that somewhere in northern India they could find climates cold enough where wool might actually be desirable. But barring that, Indian cotton was very desirable in the Spice Islands, so it was cheaper to buy cotton in India and ship it to Indonesia and trade it for spices there than it was to just buy the spices with cash. However, the geopolitical situation had changed drastically since Portugal's invasion of the Malabar coast a hundred years earlier, and gone were the days where you could just show up with some cannons and demand trading rights. Portugal had entered an India divided into many small kingdoms and city-states, which was an easy situation to exploit. But now, much of India had fallen under the sway of the powerful Mughal Empire, and if you wanted to do business in India, you needed to talk to the Mughal Emperor. Okay, let me give you a brief outline of the history of the Mughal Empire, because it's pretty fascinating and very important for the story of the East India Company. It is from the name Mughal, by the way, that we get our modern word, Mughal. The Mughal rulers and their core military were actually of Mongolian origin. The founder of their empire was Babur, who claimed to be a descendant of both Genghis Khan and the later Mongol conqueror Tamerlane. His goal was to rebuild Tamerlane's empire in Central Asia, but he got beat by the Uzbeks and ended up in Kabul, Afghanistan. Though his ambitions lay west, to the east, Babur saw an opportunity. Divided India was ripe for the taking. In 1519, as Portugal was consolidating its power down on the Malabar coast, Babur's army entered Pakistan, then northern India. Like the Portuguese conquest of the seas, Babur was able to defeat larger Indian armies on land with superior firepower. His armies combined traditional Mongol cavalry tactics with state-of-the-art cannons and matchlock guns, which terrified the war elephants that Indian armies depended on. In addition to being a great general, Babur enjoyed the finer things in life. Food, he was a portly fellow, sex, he had an extensive harem, and of course lots of booze. The Mughals were Muslim, but they never took the Islamic prohibition on alcohol all that seriously. However, at one point, facing powerful enemies with his troops demoralized, Babur declared their conquest of India a jihad, and as a sign of their new piety, he had all wine goblets and decanters smashed and all the wine turned into vinegar. He must have been a compelling leader because supposedly, instead of complaining, his troops were reinvigorated with religious zeal for conquest. By the time he died in 1530, Babur had conquered much of northern India. He was succeeded by his son Humayun. One of my favorite things about the Mughals, by the way, is how amazing all of their names were. Humayun was a brave young man. At one point, he personally led a commando raid on a supposedly impenetrable fortress that involved scaling a giant wall with rock climbing gear. But like his father, he liked to party, and that included a burgeoning opium habit. 
So while he slipped into addiction, much of his father's empire slipped away. Eventually, he fled to Persia, where he sobered up, made friends with the Shah, got 12,000 Persians to help him reclaim his father's lands, and then died by falling down some stairs. His 13-year-old son Akbar succeeded him, and no, he wasn't an admiral, and he wasn't famous for saying it's a trap. It was Akbar who would really build the Mughal Empire into something that would last. Akbar was the first Mughal to really think of himself not as a Mongol emperor with lands in India, but as India's emperor. He was said to leave the palace in disguise and wander the streets to find out what ordinary citizens were talking about. He married a Hindu princess from a powerful Indian family. He also promoted religious tolerance, ending discrimination against his Hindu subjects. While Babur had found religion, Akbar was less religious than spiritual. He was interested in the wisdom that all different religions had to offer, and he enjoyed collecting various mystics and prophets in his retinue. He liked to stage theological debates between religious scholars of different faiths, with Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and Christians all invited to the table. At one point, some Portuguese priests got very excited when they received an invitation to send a missionary up to talk to Akbar, thinking they were about to convert the great emperor to Christianity. Instead, they found themselves debating rival clergy for Akbar's entertainment. Akbar was also a talented military commander, and by the time he died in 1605, his empire stretched from Afghanistan to Bangladesh as far north as the border with Tibet, and as far south as the Deccan Plains in central India. Akbar was succeeded by his son Salim, and if you think that's a boring name, don't worry. Upon ascending to the throne, Salim took the name Jahangir, Persian for conqueror of the world. And it was to the court of Jahangir that William Hawkins would come looking for trading rights in 1608. If Hawkins had had any imperial arrogance about him, it didn't last long. The Mughal Empire was wealthy and powerful. Jahangir had something like 100 million subjects at a time when the population of the British Isles was around 5 million. Seeing the capital of Agra for the first time, Hawkins remarked that this must be one of the largest cities in the world. The first Mughal official he encountered, Mukarab Khan, treated him contemptuously. The Portuguese, meanwhile, wanted to get rid of him as quickly as possible. They had exclusive trading rights with India and weren't going to give them up without a fight. They tried to have Hawkins murdered and arrested some of his men, and to add insult to injury, the Portuguese commander in Surat taunted him by calling King James the King of Fishermen and England an island of little account, which got Hawkins royally pissed off. However, when he finally managed to make it to the capital of Agra, he found the emperor gracious and welcoming. Jahangir was a collector of exotic curiosities, and an Englishman made an excellent addition. Jahangir kept stalling on the issue of trading rights, which both Portuguese and Muslims in his court were dead set against. But to keep Hawkins around, he offered him a title and a salary to remain in court. Thus, William Hawkins temporarily became a Khan of the Mughal Empire. Jahangir was more like his grandfather Humayun than his father Akbar. That is, he preferred to spend his time on drinking, carousing, and forcing slaves to wrestle lions than on keeping up his empire. Hawkins and his successor Thomas Rowe wrote a great deal about the emperor and his drinking habits. His preferred beverage was a rock made from coconut sap, which he mixed with wine. 
One of the primary arguments against the possibility that punch was an indigenous Indian beverage is that in all the accounts of the drinking at Jahangir's court, there is no mention of anything like it. An Indian historian went over the history of, dr- of drinking in India in the early days. You know, I don't know the languages, and he does. He didn't find punch among the uh, the, the indigenous Indian drinks, and you know, there's very little evidence for punch. I mean, it's 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 quite possible because they certainly had the ingredients and were were you know drinking uh, citrus uh, and then they were drinking spirits, but it doesn't seem to have been uh, a thing. You don't see it around until the the Europeans arrive, and uh, not until you know 50 years later do you see uh, indigenous people drinking punch. So, is it possible? Yes. If there's new evidence, uh, you know, I, w- I will gladly switch my opinion. Jahangir at least had the sense to marry well. His wife, known as Nur Jahan, or Light of the World, basically kept the day-to-day operations of the empire going when Jahangir was too drunk to be bothered. And Sir Thomas Rowe would later note that, quote, public business sleeps unless referred to her, and that, quote, she governs him and winds him up at her pleasure. Her brother Asaf Khan was one of Jahangir's best generals. Jahangir's son Shah Jahan would marry Asaf Khan's daughter, his first cousin, that is, Mumtaz Mahal. And if you haven't heard of Mumtaz, you've probably heard of her tomb, the Taj Mahal. While he became the emperor's drinking buddy, Hawkins wasn't getting anywhere with the trade agreement. Instead, the emperor offered to find him a wife. Trying to worm out of the proposition, Hawkins insisted that he could only marry a Christian woman, thinking there's no way Jahangir's going to find a Christian woman to try to make me marry. But Jahangir met the challenge. He found an Armenian woman who needed a husband, and Hawkins had little choice but to accept. Hawkins was not much helped by London either. Jahangir, being a collector of curiosities, kept demanding the finest presents England had to offer if he was to consider signing the trade deal. But the company directors in London, apparently assuming that this barbarian emperor had no taste, kept sending him crappy paintings and other clearly poor quality fare. Eventually, Jahangir did offer the English trading rights, then quickly rescinded them under pressure from the Portuguese and his own officials. Relations went from bad to worse when some English sailors got drunk and slaughtered a cow, which is never a good idea in India. So things with the emperor got dicey, and despairing of his mission and starting to fear for his own life at the hands of the unpredictable Jahangir, Hawkins left the court at Agra and returned to Surat fuming, where he would be picked up by an equally pissed off Henry Middleton, but we'll get to that in a second. Okay, back to Indonesia and our Shakespeare-loving Captain Keeling. Keeling headed right for the nutmeg-producing Banda Islands. At this point, the English were pretty much giving up on Ternate and Tidore. I think it's time to describe the Banda Islands, because they're going to be the main backdrop for the rest of this episode's story. Columbus's theory that spices came from the biblical earthly paradise may have been wrong, but Google image search the Banda Islands and you'll see that it looks about as close to paradise as one could imagine. Picturesque beaches, palm trees, coral reefs, beautiful mountains, seriously, it looks amazing. Most of the population of the Bandas lived on the largest island, called Banda Basar, or Great Banda. Banda Basar is shaped like a crescent, and that crescent wraps itself around two smaller islands, 
Banda Neira and Banda Api. Banda Api is actually just the peak of Gunung Api, a large, mostly submerged, active volcano. About six miles west of these three main islands is the island of Palau Ai, and another six-ish miles west is Palau Run. Unlike Ternate and Dodore, the Portuguese had never managed to subjugate the Bandas. They had no sultan or king who could be co-opted. They were ruled in a fairly democratic way by a council of village chiefs called the Orang Kaya. The Bandis were willing to trade with Europeans, but violently resisted any attempt to land troops on their island, and showed no interest in converting to Christianity either. However, when Keeling showed up, he found a frighteningly large number of Dutch ships. A Dutch captain had intimidated some Orangkaya into signing an agreement, which they couldn't actually read because it was in Dutch, to trade exclusively with Holland, and now the VOC intended to enforce this contract. The Bandis were eager to trade with Keeling, but fearful of Dutch retribution. He made an offer to protect them if they would swear fealty to the King of England, but the Bandis' chiefs were like, we can count, and the Dutch have about ten times as many men as you do, so thanks but no thanks. Then a Dutch admiral named Verhoff showed up with even more ships and soldiers and told the Bandis that he was going to build a fort on Banda Neira. Keeling retreated over to Palau Ai, I and the other small island, Run, had never signed on to the exclusive trade deal, and they were more than willing to trade with the English. As Keeling loaded his ships, he sensed that something was about to go down. And it sure was. The Orangkaya offered Verhoff a meeting that he assumed was going to be their capitulation. When he arrived at the appointed place, he found only a single messenger there to greet him. The messenger told him that the Orangkaya were afraid of his weapons, and that they wanted to meet with him in the woods unarmed. Verhoff was apparently not the brightest bulb, because he walked right into this extremely obvious trap. He entered the woods unarmed with 42 members of his entourage, and they were immediately surrounded and massacred. Simultaneously, Dutch positions all over the island came under attack. In the chaos, Keeling managed to load up on nutmeg and sail away for more Shakespeare and the long voyage home. While the Dutch nominally put down the rebellion and managed to build their fort on Neira, native resistance continued, and the fort was often under siege. The 4th East India Company fleet, under Henry Middleton's younger brother, David, was again able to slip in during the chaos and do business with Palau Ai. So, despite the rising power of the Dutch, English profits were now up to more than 200% per voyage. Their royal charter was made permanent, and a 5th fleet was dispatched, this one commanded by Henry Middleton. However, this voyage was an unmitigated disaster. The story, which seems like it belongs more in a Monty Python sketch than a history book, is honestly a bit of a tangent, but it's so good I just have to tell it. So, Middleton was supposed to check out trade with more Asian ports to see if someone, anyone, might want to buy English wool. The first port he decided to stop at was Aden in Yemen. This was Ottoman Empire territory, although then as now, Yemen is not the easiest country to govern, so Ottoman control was nominal at best. The local governor, the Pasha, basically ruled as he pleased. 
When Middleton decided to ask some locals what they thought about the Pasha, they said something along the lines of, he's a very, very bad man. So, hearing this, Middleton decided to head to Mocha instead, which required entering the Red Sea. On the way, he managed to get his flagship stuck on a sandbank. The ruler of Mocha, known as the Aga, seemed extremely friendly and helpful, maybe a little too friendly and helpful. He wined and dined Middleton and offered him and his officers a lavish waterfront mansion to stay in while the troubles with their ship got sorted out. So Middleton was just uncorking a bottle of Madeira in his new accommodations when he heard shouting and was knocked out by a blow to his head and woke up to find himself and his officers in chains. While this was happening, the Aga's men rode out to his flagship under cover of darkness and climbed aboard. I'm going to assume that they climbed up the rigging holding cutlasses between their teeth because that's how it happens in pirate movies. Anyway, the ship was nearly lost before some quick-thinking sailor managed to roll a barrel of gunpowder at the interlopers and blow them to smithereens. The ship was saved, but there was an ongoing hostage situation. Middleton was being held in a dog kennel under a flight of stairs with only rats to keep him company. Eventually, the Aga shipped the prisoners up to Sana'a, where the Pasha ordered them freed. But when they got back to Mocha, the Aga basically ignored the order and imprisoned them again, although this time under house arrest, with no dog kennels involved. So here's the wacky story of how they got away. First, a bottle of aquavitae was smuggled to them from the ship. They got the guards drunk and relieved them of their keys. Because Henry figured anyone in town would recognize him, he had his officers roll him to shore in a barrel, where they managed to get into a boat and escape. However, not all of the men were so lucky. One Mr. Lawrence Femel was supposedly unable to run because of his, quote, unwieldy fatness and was recaptured. For a month, Middleton blockaded the port of Mocha with his ships, and finally the Aga agreed to release the remaining hostages. The Aga got in the last word, though. Knowing that the portly Mr. Femel wouldn't turn down a meal, he gave him a farewell dinner laced with slow-acting poison, and a few days after they left Mocha, he was dead. So Middleton then decided to head to India, where he figured, with Hawkins having been there for a couple of years, working on the trade deal, maybe we can finally sell some of this freaking wool that nobody wants. But, of course, when he got there, he heard from Hawkins about how the Emperor had cancelled the trade agreement, and then he really lost it. Wanting revenge on both the Aga of Mocha and Jahangir, Middleton decided it would be a good idea to sail back to the Red Sea and confiscate the goods of Indian ships that were trying to trade with Mocha. To distinguish themselves from mere pirates, the English compensated the Indian ships for their impounded goods by filling their cargo hold with that English wool that nobody wanted anything to do with. This was not such a good idea. While Middleton was gone, the Aga, the one who had kept him in a dog kennel, had actually been fired and replaced, and the new Aga was just inking a trade deal with a different East India Company captain. So then Middleton started attacking Indian shipping and totally pissed off the new Aga, and the deal was cancelled and the East India Company's reputation was sullied, and Middleton got chewed out by the other captain in front of his crew, and things were just not so good. When Middleton finally made it to Bantam, he found that one of his ships, the ironically named Trades Increase, was no longer seaworthy, and the other ships weren't in good condition either. 
Stuck in Bantam, Middleton and his sailors got sick and started dropping like flies. Arriving with the next year's fleet, English factor John Jourdain described the trade's increase as looking like a ghost ship. When he hailed the vessel, just four sickly men emerged from the hull. Within, 140 lay dead or dying. One of these four survivors was a factor named Nathaniel Courthope, who was soon to become Holland's enemy number one in the Indies. Middleton was unlucky because just six months after he stormed out of Surat in a rage, another English captain named Thomas Best found the Mughals singing a very different tune. Maybe it was because Jahangir was getting fed up with Portugal and wanted somebody to play against them, or maybe Middleton's piracy had demonstrated that the English actually had some balls and some cannons to go with them. Or maybe it was because Best had finally brought some decent presents for the emperor. Along with some nice loot, the English sent a cornet player named Robert Truly to join Jahangir's court. Truly would end up converting to Islam and becoming something of a sensation in India. At any rate, Jahangir quickly gave the green light to trade with the English. The Portuguese weren't about to take this reversal sitting down, and sent a party of warships from Goa to attack the English at Surat. The Portuguese had four ships to two English ships, and their ships were bigger and had more men. But Best managed to get the best of them, Badam Ching, because as seen at the battle with the Spanish Armada, Spain and Portugal's ships were just out of date. They were big, bulky, and couldn't maneuver well, and their cannons didn't have the range of English guns. Their tactics were based on getting close, exchanging a few volleys, and then closing the distance and repelling aboard the enemy ship and fighting hand to hand. The smaller English ships were able to keep a safe distance while bombarding the Portuguese with shot. The Portingals, as the English called them, considered this a very unmanly way of fighting, but they were forced to retreat to Goa with their tail between their legs. Thus, English trade with India began, with the first English factory established in Surat. Of course, they still didn't have much success in selling English wool. Apparently, some of the Mughals did use it to make blankets for their war elephants, but that wasn't a huge market. On the other hand, when British consumers got their hand on Indian cotton, they were like, I never want to wear this horrible wool again. So the balance of trade that mercantilists obsessed over was not helped, and the English weavers would soon be up in arms about Indian textiles taking their jobs away, but trade with India did begin to flourish. Okay, back to Bantam. John Jourdain, the factor who discovered what was left of Middleton's crew, was made chief factor of Bantam, in charge of the company's operations in the Indies. Jourdain was determined not to lose the Malukas to the Dutch, but he found himself constrained by the lopsided balance of forces between the two sides. The English still had very few ships and troops in the Indies, while the Dutch at any given time might have a dozen or so ships and several thousand soldiers. Jourdain's principal opponent was an extremely ambitious and equally ruthless 26-year-old Dutch captain named Jan Cohen. When the two met for the first time on Ambon, they nearly came to blows, in part because Jordan Dane insulted the brash young Dutchman's pitiful beard. 
1615, Jourdain sent a small expedition to the Banda Islands. In what the Bandese thought was a very pretentious sign, just as they arrived, the volcanic Gunung Api erupted, sending huge boulders crashing down on the Dutch fort on Banda Neira. The Orangkaya of Palau I quickly agreed to allow the English to establish a factory there, believing this meant the English would protect them from the Dutch. Unfortunately for them, the English were either unable or unwilling to fully commit to their protection. Once they had loaded up with nutmeg, most of the English left, leaving only a token force behind at their new factory under the command of Richard Hunt. It's possible that they thought the Dutch weren't going to openly attack where the English flag flew, and that their mere presence would protect the island. If so, they couldn't have been more wrong. Once their fort was no longer under attack from the volcano, the Dutch started assembling an amphibious assault force, consisting of Dutch troops and Japanese mercenaries. On May 14, 1615, the Dutch landed on the beaches of Palau I with almost a thousand troops. However, the island was not about to just give up, and the Dutch quickly discovered they had a real fight on their hands. While the English hadn't left a lot of men, they had armed the bandies with muskets, and the island was well fortified. By sundown, the Dutch had managed to take most of the island, but the bandies and English held out. The Dutch made camp and went to bed, which was a terrible idea. Before dawn, the bandies crept out of the jungle and launched a devastating counterattack. Things quickly looked so bad for the Dutch that two Dutchmen actually defected and started shooting their own men. The Dutch were forced to retreat with heavy losses, and the island was saved. But Palau I was not to have much respite. The following year, the VOC dispatched a fleet of 12 ships to the Bandas, with a thousand men under Admiral Jan Lamb. Nothing nearly so significant was forthcoming from England, but Jourdain did his best to respond, sending a fleet of five ships under Samuel Castleton to defend I. The two sides lined up and a battle was about to begin when, as often happened, the company's officers proved its worst enemy. All of a sudden, Castleton agreed to basically accept all the terms the Dutch demanded and withdraw. Supposedly, it was because he'd just learned the name of the man he was facing. Lamb had actually saved his life from the Portuguese a few years earlier, so Castleton basically said, I owe you one, you can have the islands. It's possible he was just looking for an excuse to avoid battle when he was outnumbered. At any rate, he departed and left orders for Richard Hunt to remain neutral in the coming invasion. In a last act of desperation, the Orang Kaya surrendered the islands of Ai and Run to Hunt. This made them sovereign English territory, and thus should compel the English to defend them. The fleet was already gone, but Hunt had no intention of obeying Castleton's order to remain neutral, and when the Dutch launched another amphibious assault, they once again found it far more difficult than expected. It took the Dutch three days of fierce fighting to take the island, and by the time they did, Hunt and many of the islanders had fled to the westernmost island, Palau Run. Meanwhile in Banton, tensions between the English and the Dutch reached fever pitch, and fights broke out in the streets. When Hunt returned to Bantam, he made the mistake of leaving the English factory alone. The Dutch seized him, beat him badly, and chained him up in the hot sun all day. They only let him go when Jourdain subjected a Dutch merchant to similar treatment. In late 1616, Jourdain sent two ships to reinforce Palau Run, under the command of Nathaniel Courthope. 
When Court Hope arrived, the Orankaya reaffirmed their surrender of the islands to the King of England and ceremonially presented Court Hope with a nutmeg seedling. The cross of St. George now flew over Run, and King James would thenceforth adopt the title King of England, Scotland, France, Ireland, Pullaway, and Pullaroon, the latter two being anglicizations of Pullau I and Pullau Run. Back in Europe, the Dutch and English tried to tamp down tensions by pressuring the two companies to negotiate. But negotiations broke down, and the VOC wanted something drastic done before they were pushed back to the negotiating table. Jan Cohen was dispatched new orders, quote, Something on a large scale must be done against the enemies. The inhabitants of Banda must be subjugated. Their leaders must be killed or driven out of the land. And if necessary, the country must be turned into a desert by uprooting the trees and shrubs. Militarily, Courthope is not in much immediate danger because Palau Run has dangerous reefs and high cliffs along most of its shoreline, making it almost impervious to attack. The biggest threat, however, was not attack but blockade. Run is less than two miles from end to end and at its widest about two-thirds of a mile wide. Almost the entirety of the island was covered with nutmeg rather than food crops. It didn't even have a source of fresh water other than rainwater. Trapped on the tiny island, discipline began to fray. First, the captain of one of his ships went rogue and tried to run the blockade to resupply. Soon enough, the ship was captured by the Dutch. Then some other sailors decided they didn't like their chances on run and mutinied, stealing his second ship and defecting to the Dutch. Court Hope was now trapped. For the next three years, Run would be totally dependent on small native boats that occasionally managed to make it past the Dutch blockade as their only source of supplies and communication with the outside world. For three years, Court Hope, 38 Englishmen, and a few hundred bandees would hold out on Run, perpetually on the edge of starvation. As he paced the ramparts of his tiny forts, surrounded by hundreds of acres of the most valuable crop in the world, Courthope must have wondered why no help was coming from either the company for whom he was fighting, nor the king who proudly called himself the King of Pullaway and Pullaroon. As we've discussed, at the time the company's directors from London were looking for quick profits and weren't prepared to invest in serious military adventures. The government was also very reluctant to provoke the Dutch. Another problem, which would plague the company throughout its history, was that it wasn't set up to reward team players. The company never paid its employees well, particularly when compared to the risks and hardships they endured sailing around the world. Imagine a job similar to being an Alaskan fisherman, think deadliest catch, and yet it barely pays above minimum wage. Why the hell would anyone sign up for that? Well, the answer, besides getting to see the world, is that there was good money to be made if you were willing to break some rules and do some business yourself. If you wanted to get rich in the Indies, it was not from drawing your company's salary, but by doing your own private trade while enjoying the trading privileges of being an East India Company factor. This was technically against the rules, but enforcement was lax, and eventually the company started officially sanctioning it. There were actually a lot of people who went to the Indies in the employ of the company, got fired or quit, and then stuck around and opened up their own merchant houses. The result was that the biggest competitors to East India Company merchants were often one another. There wasn't a lot of incentive to work together. 
1617, some of Court Hope's men managed to slip through the blockade and reach Bantam. Unfortunately, John Jourdain had gone back to England to try to convince the company that they needed to send some serious muscle if they wanted to maintain their toehold in the Indies, and George Ball was left in charge. Ball apparently spent all of his time on private ventures and rivalries with other merchants, and didn't lift a finger to help Courthope. Finally, in 1618, three ships were sent to resupply Palau Run. The island gave a great cheer to see their sails on the horizon. The Dutch were in hot pursuit, but it looked like they were going to make it. Then, just when they thought they were saved, the wind changed. The Dutch caught up with the English ships, and after a brief fight, they surrendered and were taken. The Bandees were apparently shocked and dismayed that the English didn't fight to the death. They may have wished they did, because the prisoners were kept in horrific conditions. One sailor, Bartholomew Churchman, described his treatment thus, quote, They pissed upon us and shit upon our heads, and in this manner we lay, until such time as we were broken out like lepers, having nothing to eat but dirty rice and stinking rainwater to drink. In 1618, at John Jourdain's urging, the company finally tried to get serious about defending their position in the Indies. Jourdain was sent back to the Indies, this time with a large fleet, under the command of Sir Thomas Dale. Dale had previously been the deputy governor of the Virginia colony, and had returned with one of the biggest celebrities of the day, Pocahontas. Now, Dale had been brought out of retirement, and was given a special commission from the king to defend English shipping from Dutch aggression. Jourdain and Dale managed to catch Cohen in a bad position when they arrived in Bantam. For once, the English had more ships than the Dutch, and Cohen was in the process of moving his forces to a new factory in Jakarta. The English convinced Jakarta's ruler to switch sides and form an alliance against the Dutch. With no safe harbor, Cohen had no choice but to give battle despite his inferior numbers. The English outnumbered the Dutch 11 ships to 7. The battle lasted all day, and more than 3,000 cannonballs flew back and forth. When the sun set, the Dutch ships were badly damaged. Three had sunk, but the rest were still floating. The next morning, they retreated, heading for the Moluccas. Now, I'd just like to pause for a moment and point out that England and Holland were not at war, and would not be for decades. This was two privately held corporations staging a major naval battle with state-of-the-art weapons at the cost of hundreds of lives, all over who had the right to buy nutmeg where. Hooray for capitalism. A month later, Nathaniel Courthope would report seeing a Dutch ship limping into Bandanaira shot through in 40 places. What he did not see, however, was English ships giving chase. Once again, the English had shot themselves in the foot. Dale decided to wait up for three additional ships that were close behind and let Cohen get a head start, then decided not to give chase because he was worried another Dutch fleet might arrive from Europe and cut him off before he could overtake them. Instead, Dale besieged the fort at Jakarta, but soon his men and their allies were all squabbling and working at cross-purposes and bungling the whole affair. Then the King of Bantam, whose troops had been helping with the siege, decided he wasn't going to trade one dangerous European power for another, and broke his alliance with the English and the siege fell apart. In early 1619, word arrived that Cohen was on his way back with reinforcements, and Dale left Bantam for India. 
Soon after arriving at Masulapatnam, he got sick and died, and his fleet was scattered by his quarrelsome captains, many of them ultimately picked off by the Dutch. In May of 1619, Jan Cohen and his reinforced fleet returned to Jakarta and burned it to the ground. A few years later, it would be rebuilt as Batavia, the capital of the Dutch Empire in the east. The name Jakarta would not be restored until 1946, when it became the capital of a newly independent Indonesia. After this, the English position began to collapse. A month later, John Jourdain's ship was surprised and captured by the Dutch off the Malay Peninsula. Jourdain tried to surrender, but a Dutch sailor shot him dead. However, just as Cohen was savoring his victory, he learned that his superiors had cut a deal, and the Dutch and English East India companies were now to share the spice trade. When word of the rising violence got back to Europe, the English and Dutch governments put pressure on their respective companies to tamp things down before they got out of hand. In July 1619, the same month that Jourdain was killed, Cohen's superiors in Amsterdam had cut a deal with the East India Company's directors in London. One of the biggest challenges of running a global empire in the age before telecommunications was that it took a lot of time for information to get back and forth. Cohen found out in 1620 that the directors in Amsterdam had signed a deal in 1619, probably based on information from 1618, when the English were still a serious challenge to the Dutch in the Indies. But the other consequence of this extremely long line of communication was that the directors in Europe had to give their governors tremendous autonomy. Regardless of what had been signed back in Europe, in the Indies, Cohen was in charge, which meant he could drag his feet and undermine the agreement at every turn. He took his sweet time releasing English prisoners, and Run remained under siege. It doesn't appear that Nathaniel Courthope even found out about the existence of the agreement. The new treaty gave the English the right to one-third of the spice trade in the Indies. In return, it made them responsible for one-third of the expenditures needed to defend the islands. Cohen exploited this clause, launching a series of expensive military ventures against the remaining Portuguese and Spanish strongholds, as well as the native rebels on various islands. He demanded that the English pony up cash and troops to contribute to these actions, and when they failed to do so, he declared them in violation of the treaty. He also accused them of selling arms to native rebels, which was often true. In October of 1620, Courthope, still ignorant of the peace treaty, got wind of another uprising brewing on Banda Basar. Against the advice of his men, Courthope decided to travel there under cover of darkness to meet with the leaders of the new rebellion. However, there was a spy with him on Palau Run, a Dutchman who had posed as a deserter. Some 50 Dutch soldiers waited in the dark for Courthope. Around 2 a.m., they saw the lantern in his approaching boat. Courthope was surrounded, and after a brief shootout, he was dead. Robert Hayes, Courthope's second-in-command on Palau Run, learned of the Anglo-Dutch treaty only by intercepting a letter to the Dutch garrison, and he was so ashamed he could barely bring himself to tell the Bandees, who rightfully felt completely betrayed. The English had promised to protect the Bandees. Instead, they had become the junior partners in their annihilation. In 1621, Cohen sent 25 ships to crush resistance on the island. 
The Orankaya asked Robert Hayes if he could defend them, and he despondently replied that he could not. Faced with such overwhelming force, the defenders capitulated. Palau Run was depopulated, its population sold into slavery, and its nutmeg groves were destroyed in order to make the English claim to the island worthless. The Dutch then crushed the rebellion on Banda Basar and took 44 Orankaya prisoner. Cohen employed Japanese mercenaries who specialized in execution. The mercenaries cut the heads off of every one of the Orankaya, mounting them on bamboo stakes. One of Cohen's own officers wrote that, quote, things are carried out in such a criminal and murderous way that the blood of the poor people cries to heaven for revenge. Thus began the complete ethnic cleansing of the Banda Islands. In the subsequent years of the original 15,000 inhabitants of the islands, just a thousand would remain. The rest either killed or sold into slavery on other islands. To replace them, Cohen brought in Dutch sailors and imported slaves from other places. It was a process similar to what had occurred on the Caribbean islands like Hispaniola a century earlier. Get rid of the natives, bring in slaves, work them to death, bring in more slaves. The idyllic Banda Islands had been turned into slave plantations, all to satisfy Europe's craving for nutmeg. All over the Moluccas, the Dutch did everything they could to undermine the treaty with the English. Tensions reached fever pitch in a gruesome incident called the Massacre at Amban. Amban, you may recall, was a strategically important island in the middle of the Molucca archipelago, and after the 1619 agreement was signed, a small group of English merchants moved in. There was also a contingent of Japanese mercenaries on the island, and the Dutch didn't trust either the Japanese or the English. One night, a Dutchman spotted one of the Japanese looking at the Dutch fortifications and thought it was suspicious. He had the man arrested and tortured him until he confessed to being a part of a conspiracy against the Dutch. Then all the mercenaries were arrested and tortured, and they all confessed that they were conspiring with the English to take over the fort. The Dutch then arrested the Englishmen and subjected them to all manner of brutal torture. Giles Milton describes the torture in great detail in his book Nathaniel's Nutmeg. I'll suffice it to say that both water and fire were involved, and soon all the English confessed to being part of the conspiracy. Of course, there was no conspiracy, and the Dutch hardly seemed interested in the truth. Under torture, the English all told totally different stories, whatever their captors wanted to hear, and recanted them as soon as their feet were quite literally out of the fire. Nonetheless, nearly all the English were put to death. The massacre provoked an outcry in London and nearly led to war, but King James was unwilling to go that far. There was outcry in Amsterdam as well when the Dutch people learned of the behavior of the VOC in the Indies. But nonetheless, Cohen was reappointed VOC Governor General. He died of disease in Batavia in 1629. Just three years after signing the agreement, the East India Company ended its agreement with the VOC and withdrew from the Moluccas, leaving the Dutch with a monopoly over the spice trade. So the story of England's foray into the Spice Islands is almost over, although there are a couple of interesting footnotes which I'll get to in a minute. But the story of the East India Company has just begun. Thanks to the trade agreements that Thomas Best had secured from Jahangir, trade with India was growing. 
The factory at Surat thrived, and in 1611 the company opened another factory on the eastern side of India at Masulipatnam, which was not yet under Mughal rule. For a long time, conventional wisdom had it that it was factors in these early settlements in India that invented punch. The idea is that these guys were sitting around all day in a foreign country with not much to do, and they took to drinking heavily and experimenting with mixology. The earliest mention of punch that David Wandrich was able to unearth was a letter from one factor to another warning him to, quote, drink punch by no allowance. And other early mentions referred to it as an Indian beverage or a beverage of the English in India. In 1676, an English doctor named John Fryer wrote that the name punch comes from the Hindi word for the number five, pancha, which he posited refers to the five ingredients in the drink. Since then, this theory that punch was invented by English factors in India and that its etymology is Hindi has been accepted by pretty much everyone who has bothered to write about alcohol history. But David Wandrich has a different theory, and I asked him about it. In the book, you outlined three different theories for where punch might have came from. Um, one that it was indigenous to India or somewhere in the mm -hmm. Indies. Um, two that it was invented by British factors living in India. Um, or three that it was invented by sailors on voyages between Europe and the Indies. Um, can you tell us a bit about um, which theory you believe to be correct and why? Well, I have to preface this by saying these are educated guesses at best. I mean, we're looking at a, a jigsaw puzzle with most of the pieces missing and no picture on the box. So it's it, it's very hard to uh, to come down definitively. But for me, the preponderance of the evidence suggests that it was sailors in the British East India Company. You know, and some of them were factors, too. But I think it was uh, a shipboard improvisation more likely than something uh, done on land, partly because there are records of East India ships issuing small amounts of spirits medicinally. There are records of East India ships, and this is very far ahead of their time, issuing lemon juice and uh, sweetened lemon juice to the sailors uh, as an anti-scorbutic, you know, to, to prevent scurvy. There is no record that those were ever combined, but it's certainly quite possible. Uh, there are other English drinks from the late 1500s involving wine and sweetened citrus juice. So uh, all you have to do is put the spirits in and add water and you've reconstituted the wine, and you've made a drink. So uh, it's one of those things, you can see the gun lying there, you can see the victim on the floor, uh, but, you know, you don't know exactly what happened. But the uh, earliest data point we have is is from 1632 with a letter uh, saying, don't drink punch from one factor to another. But uh, the fact that these two guys were in separate cities, you know, they had to have gotten there somehow. And how did they both know the same drink? unless uh, you know, sailors is, is the easiest hypothesis. Also, because punch became known as a sailor's drink from the middle of the 1600s on. And then there's, there's further evidence uh, that I talked about a little bit in the book, and I've looked into a little bit more, and that's uh, Pietro della Valle, a, uh, an Italian traveler and a very reliable one. He's on his way home from Asia, and he runs into the English in the Straits of Hormuz who are on their way home. This is in the 1620s or 1610s. They're drinking this drink called Larkin, which he says is very strong and delicious, and I'm bringing home the recipe, but he doesn't tell us what the recipe is. But he says it's, you know, it's new, it's unlike anything else, uh, it's something the English make, it's very valiant, and uh, 
that can only be punch, I think. There are very few other uh, hypotheses that fit his description. The odds are very good, and it turns out Larkin was a, a captain in the of one of the East India Company ships, and and you know a well known one who who died when he was out in the East. That's very suggestive that you know it was it was something that came out of the East India Company. Once it spread, it got a different name, but that happens plenty with drinks. But uh, the fact that they were making some kind of compound drink, you know, because uh, Delavalle says it's a recipe. Uh, unfortunately, you know, who knows? Uh, somewhere in Italy, his papers might still reside, and there will be a handwritten recipe for punch. <laughs> I mean, uh, that would be awesome. So there you have it. Most likely, punch, the progenitor of our modern cocktail, came from English sailors trying to hydrate, avoid scurvy, and drink away their troubles all at once. And between storms, scurvy, starvation, malaria, the Dutch, the Spanish, the Portuguese, pirates, they sure had a lot of troubles. And all this for nutmeg, cloves, and pepper. Now, if this is an English sailor's drink, is the etymology really Hindi? Well, again, uh, the etymology rests on one guy. <laughs> this guy, a uh, friar, an English traveler, and a very educated young man, a, a doctor, John Fryer, in uh, in the 1670s. And he says the English on the, on the east coast of India are making this uh, liquor called punch. Punch is uh, the Hindustani word for five and then gives a bunch of Greek drinks where the name of the drink is the number of ingredients in it. And it seems like he's, he's reasoning by analogy there and not by observation. He, he nowhere says that this is an Indian drink. He has no authority for, for his, his opinion as to the name. And meanwhile, there's plenty of native English uses of the word punch for, for a bowl, for you know something squatting around. It's English dialect. You could call it a punch keg where you would cut it in half and it would look squat and round. It, often uh, punch was served out of half kegs on, on shipboard. You know, they they used what they had. And, you know, then you use Occam's razor. Uh, are the English adopting a non-English name for an English drink? Why would they do that? <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and it seems like an English drink. Again, everybody else in, in the world who, who got it claimed it was an English drink. So you have to kind of go with that. So, to clarify here, there is a Middle English noun, punchin, that's P-U-N-C-H-E-O-N, which refers to, and this is from the Online Etymology Dictionary, a barrel or cask for soap or liquor. This came into use around the 1300s, and it was derived from the Anglo-Norman word punchin, which also referred to a cask, and naturally, in dialect, punchin would be shortened to punch. By the mid-1600s, it had become bowl of punch, so punch had certainly become the drink. And it went into all the other European languages as uh, corruptions of of bowl of punch, because uh, that's how they heard the English saying it. So it's bowl punch in uh, French, and uh, palapons in in Dutch, et cetera, et cetera, where bowl is is somehow mixed in. There's evidence on both sides, but you you have to kind of go with... uh, with the preponderance, and for me, it, it, it suggests that it's probably an English name, just because of you know Occam's razor, the easiest reasonable explanation. So, most likely, punch was invented by East India Company sailors and named after what they drank it out of, but there is no definitive proof one way or another. From France, we do get brandy. From Jamaica, comes rum. 
Sweet oranges and lemons from Portugal come, but stout beer and cider are England's control. Bring me the punch ladle, I'll fathom the bowl. I'll fathom the bowl, I'll fathom the bowl. Bring me the punch ladle, I'll fathom the bowl. Now the story of the East India Company's mishaps in the Spice Islands is almost over, but there are a few very interesting addendums, so let's go back to England and Holland for a moment. A few decades after the Amban massacre, war finally broke out. At the Treaty of Westminster in 1654, which ended the First Anglo-Dutch War, the Dutch agreed to compensate the families of the Amban victims and to return run to England. At this point, King James had died, and then Charles I had gotten his head cut off, and England was under the rule of Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell gave the East India Company permission to establish an English settlement on Run and encourage them to do so. But when the settlers were finally en route, they learned that tensions with the Dutch had flared up again. Instead of risking settling in the middle of a Dutch stronghold, they settled on the island of St. Helena in the Atlantic, which is English territory to this day. The Second Anglo-Dutch War broke out in 1665 and was notable because James, Duke of York, sailed across the Atlantic and captured the Dutch settlement of New Amsterdam, which was renamed New York. In a subsequent treaty, the English agreed to give up their claim to Palau Run if the Dutch would give up their claim to New Amsterdam. While this was more an acknowledgement of the status quo than a trade, it is pretty remarkable that the site of one of the great cities of the modern world was acquired in exchange for a tiny island whose one claim to fame was nutmeg. For 200 years, the Dutch would control the world's supply of nutmeg and cloves. And in 1638, they seized Sri Lanka, the source of the global cinnamon supply. They reaped vast profits from the spice trade, and when there was too much on the market, they would burn it in giant bonfires. In 1735, more than a million pounds of nutmeg were burned in Amsterdam, and supposedly someone was put to death for trying to snatch a handful out of the flames. The first crack in the Dutch monopoly came in 1770, when a French adventurer named Pierre Poivre launched a spice heist. He had arrived in Asia as a missionary, been kicked out for getting more involved in commerce than religion, lost an arm in a fight with the English, and spent time in Irish prison. With the help of the French government, he returned to the Indies with the goal of stealing spice seedlings and taking them to the French colony of Mauritius. He managed to sneak past Dutch patrols and find a beleaguered group of islanders hiding out in the woods. Willing to do anything to harm the Dutch, they gave him nutmeg and clove seedlings. On his way out of the Maluccas, he was stopped by a Dutch patrol, but he pretended to be a lost traveler and they let him go without searching his ship. The seedlings made it to Mauritius, where the French began to cultivate them. By this point, the VOC was in bad shape. Changing tastes reduced demand for spices, the occupation of the Indies was expensive, the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War badly damaged its finances, and finally, the wars with revolutionary France did it in. 
1799, the VOC went belly up and was taken over by the Dutch government, which continued to rule Indonesia until the Japanese took it over during the Second World War. The English finally and definitely put an end to the Dutch spice monopoly in 1810. At this point, Holland had become a vassal of Napoleon's France, and England decided the opportunity was ripe to return to the Moluccas. Holland was no longer a great world power, and the English easily took over the islands. They were returned to the Dutch after the war, but not before the English had transported many seedlings to other English colonies. In 1843, Captain John Bell introduced nutmeg to the Caribbean island of Granada because he liked punch. The spice flourished, and to this day, a nutmeg clove appears on the flag of Granada, and nutmeg is one of the small nation's principal exports. The East India Company had lost the battle for the Spice Islands, but its story is far from over. It had lost the Indies, but gained a foothold in India, a foothold that would become the making of an empire. Historian John Key writes that the colonial powers granted to the company by Lord Protector Cromwell were the germ of the British Empire in Asia. Quote, it was with run in mind that the protector issued the company with a new charter, which included the authority to hold, fortify, and settle overseas territories. Thanks to the Orangkaya of Run, first St. Helena, soon after Bombay, then Calcutta, Bengal, and India and the East would come under British sway. That story on the next episode of Cocktail History. Next time on Cocktail History, I'll continue the story of the East India Company's conquest of India and the story of punches spread from the Indies around the world to Europe and America. I've also got more of my interview with David Wandrich, including his thoughts on the future of punch and his favorite punch, and you'll hear that next time. Now, I realize this episode took a long time to produce, work and life have kept me busy, and this episode got pretty long, and last week when I was almost recording, I got a cold that prevented me from recording, and excuses, excuses. Bottom line is, episode 3 is slated to come out in 4 weeks, and given that I've already done a lot of the research and started outlining, I think that's realistic. However, I'd like to give you something every couple of weeks to at least whet your appetite, and I have some more of my interview with David Wandrich that didn't really fit into this episode, but is pretty fascinating. We talked about the history of distillation, and based on our conversation, I think there are a few things in episode one that I probably got wrong. So, I'll be back in two weeks with a mini-episode on that, including a little more on a topic that I think a lot of you wanted to hear more about from episode one, alchemy. And just to give you an idea of where things are headed after that, in episode four, I'm going to wrap up the East India Company's story with a non-alcoholic beverage that had a huge impact on world history, namely tea, which will include the Boston Tea Party and the Opium War. There will probably also be another mini-episode on the founding of Singapore and the lovely Singapore Sling. And then, in episode 5, we will finally get to the invention of the cocktail, and the unlikely story of how a German doctor serving in Simone Bolivar's revolutionary army in South America ended up inventing the cocktail bitters you see almost everywhere today. Now for this episode's recipe. 
I thought I should give you one that came from sailors. In episode one, I mentioned the famous party of Admiral Edward Russell with its fountain of punch. Thanks to David Wandrich, we have the recipe. Admiral Russell threw this party in 1694 in the Spanish port city of Cadiz. Now, last time Cadiz was mentioned on this podcast, Francis Drake was attacking it in order to hold off the Spanish Armada. But the geopolitical situation in 1694 was very different. Now the English, the Spanish, and the Dutch were all allied in a war against France. European powers tended to go from friends to enemies to frenemies pretty quickly back then. Admiral Russell was spending the winter in Cadiz to prevent a French fleet from leaving the Mediterranean. Apparently, he was none too happy about not getting to return to England, although spending the winter in southern Spain sounds pretty okay to me. Anyway, to keep himself and his men entertained, Admiral Russell threw a lavish Christmas party, which featured 150 dishes and a fountain filled with 12 hogsheads of punch. In it, a little boy paddled around in a boat and filled the cups of the guests. It ended, as one might expect, with the guests jumping into the fountain and drinking it dry. If I had a time machine, Admiral Russell's punch party would probably be high on my list of times to visit, although killing Hitler and seeing a dinosaur should probably come first. Where punch traveled, people made it with whatever hard alcohol they had readily available, especially if they needed to make 12 hogsheads. So while punch in the Indies was generally a rock based and punch in the Americas was generally made with rum, punch in Europe was often made with brandy, as is the case with Admiral Russell's punch. By the late 17th century, people had started experimenting with adding additional ingredients besides the traditional five, and one of the first things that got thrown into the mix was wine. Often, this was fortified wine, such as sherry, which the English have always been fond of. Punch made with wine was referred to as punch royal. The original recipe, and there are a couple versions out there, include such proportions as four hogsheads of brandy and 25,000 lemons. Fortunately, we have David Wandrich to sort through and translate and scale down all of this, so here's how to make Admiral Russell's punch. And this is from his book Punch, The Delights and Dangers of the Flowing Bowl. First, you're going to need brandy. You should really use a VS Cognac, although if that's beyond your price point, you can still make a fine punch, as long as it isn't bottom shelf stuff. For the wine, the recipe calls for Mountain Malaga, but good luck finding that anywhere in the US. However, an Oloroso or Montilla Sherry will do nicely. I am a big fan of Lestau Oloroso Don Nuno. It is fantastic. You're also going to need a rich, simple syrup made from Demerara sugar, which is a raw sugar that will give you a much better taste than boring old white sugar. Finally, you'll need lemons, limes, and of course, nutmeg. First, you're going to make a simple syrup by bringing a cup of water to a boil, pouring it over two and a half cups of Demerara sugar, and stirring until the sugar dissolves. Add 18 ounces of fresh squeezed strained lemon juice and four ounces of fresh squeezed strained lime juice. Then, two 750 milliliter bottles of brandy, that's about six cups, 18 ounces of sherry, a quart and a half of water, water and stir it all up. Top it off with nutmeg, which should be grated fresh. To do otherwise makes the punch gods very angry. David Wandrich recommends adding a Playmobil rowboat and a boy. Specifically, he recommends Playmobil set 4295, but this is optional. 
and I would recommend serving it with ice, even though they didn't have any in Cadiz in 1694. This recipe yields 18 cups, which at around 17% ABV is about 16 standard drinks. For a small gathering, you probably want to cut it in half or more, depending on how sauced you want to get. Or if you want to recreate Admiral Russell's fountain, increase by a factor of 700. Anyway, it's a delectable punch, and I highly recommend it. Oh, and now I'm bound for the Spanish shore Where the thundering cannons are loud to roar Grant my desire, fulfill my wish A pretty girl and a jugger for this fa la 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 Speaking of recommendations, if you're at all interested in Punch, get yourself a copy of David Wandrich's book, Punch, The Delights and Dangers of the Flowing Bowl. It is a history text, a recipe book, and an entertaining read all at once. It has over 40 punch recipes going back all the way to the 1600s, and of the many I've tried, not a single one has disappointed. I'd also like to acknowledge a few more of my important sources, particularly Giles Milton's excellent book Nathaniel's Nutmeg, which covers the story of the struggle between the East India Company and the VOC in a great deal more detail than I've been able to, and it's also a really fun read. So if you've enjoyed that story, definitely get a copy of Nathaniel's Nutmeg. I also owe a great debt to the work of John Key, whose books The Honorable Company and India A History have been invaluable. And very soon, if you head over to chpodcast.com, you'll be able to find blog posts for each episode with a bunch of maps, a list of sources, and the recipe from the episode. You can also find links to our social media, subscribe on iTunes, and even leave me a tip. And if you like the podcast and want to support it, leaving a rating and review on iTunes really does help. And one more recommendation. One thing that frustrated me when researching this episode is that you really don't get the Indonesian side of the story. Everything you read is based on what Europeans were writing. That's one reason I was really excited to see there is a new History of Indonesia podcast. It's by Anthony Frasina, and I really enjoyed the first episode, so if you want to learn more about Indonesia, definitely subscribe to A History of Indonesia. This episode featured the voice of Andy Turner performing the English folk song Fathom the Bowl. He recorded this as part of his Folk Song a Week project, which is very cool. I'll include a link in the show notes. The rest of the music you heard comes from the Free Music Archive, and I'll include links to the tracks on the website chpodcast.com. Thanks to all the artists who put their work up there for free, non-commercial use, and I know I'm going to butcher a lot of these names, but on this episode you heard Rabu, Senyawa, Vina Kinhall, Howie Mitchell, Vic Gammon, Kevin McLeod, and the Wellington Sea Shanty Society. Until next time, I'm Sam Eilertson. Our theme song was composed by Harry Aspinwall. And thank you so much to David Wandrich for coming on the show. Follow David on Twitter at David Wandrich. Follow me at Cocktail Hist Pod. And remember that unlike cocktails, history is something you can never have too much of. Mm-hmm.